0: Welcome to the Miller Odcast, a brand new podcast from the Missouri Review. For over 40 years now, TMR has been discovering and publishing the best contemporary writing in fiction, nonfiction, and poetry. Our quarterly magazine appears in print, digital, and audio formats. Learn more at MissouriReview.com. Hello, and welcome to Odcast number 34 the podcast featuring finalists from the 2021 Miller Audio Prize from the Missouri Review. I'm Mark McKee, managing editor of the Missouri Review, and by my instruments it seems to be a million o'clock on the internet. Good thing you're here. For our latest auto-documentary finalist, we have Tazine Zahida and her interview of the novelist Babsi Sidwa, recorded first for the interview series "Passé A Aena, which translates to The Person Behind the Persona. Born in Karachi and raised in Saudi Arabia, poetry and literature played a major role in Zahida's upbringing. She grew up immersed in the writings of Khalib, Iqbal, Faiz, Shakespeare, and Shaw. She eventually found her voice in playwriting. An unapologetic bilingual, she writes plays both in English and Urdu. Tazin's work is inspired by current affairs, social issues, family dynamics, and her experiences of living in the Middle East and America. Her work aims to represent the unrepresented and tell the untold stories in an authentic manner. That work has been commissioned by the Society for Performing Arts Houston, SPA, and Silicon Valley Shakespeare, and she works under the banner of her company, TZ Productions. The Person Behind the Persona is an interview series that shines a light on South Asian women who have inspired a number of generations through their tireless efforts to better the world. Trying to discover the person behind the persona these interviews aim to explore the lives and careers of these incredible women. This interview was the first of the series. As the heater writes, Babsi Sidwa represents all the old school values that we so fondly reminisce about from the way she dresses up to the way she conducts herself and the way she guides aspiring writers. Like all great people, she has this aura that makes you wanna be at your best when you find yourself in her gracious company. Babsi as a person, is defined by compassion, while Babsi, as a writer, is defined by fearlessness of expression. These two traits are evident in her heartfelt accounts of human suffering and triumph. I continue to be in awe of her, not only as a great writer, but also as a person. Stick around after the interview to hear Bailey Boyd and I discuss the interview, and reflect on and continue the valuable conversations about the specific insights and wisdom therein, and the importance of interviews like this in general. And now, Tazeen Zahida, interviewing Babsi Sidwa.
1: Ladies and gentlemen, I'm your host, Tazin Zahida. My honorary guest today is the eminent English writer, Babsi Sidhwa. Her body of work comprises of novels, short stories, and anthologies, she has related to us the stories of partition and of everyday happenings of a woman's life with equal grace and composure. From her first book, The Crow Eaters in 1978, to her latest work, Their Language of Love 2013, Wapsi's illustrious writing career spans over almost 40 years, and it is far from over. Her prose is like a brook, that keeps going at an amazingly consistent flow, she has most magnificently blurred the line between fiction and nonfiction. The genius of her storytelling makes all her characters real. Her settings and situations defy the so-called history we are taught to believe. It is my privilege to welcome Bapsi Sidwa to my show. Alaikum
2: God bless you. Thank you, my darling. I love you. What a gorgeous introduction. Thank you. It's, I
1: appreciate it. Okay. When you were writing your first draft of the first book, The Crow Eaters in 1978, did you ever had self-doubt? Uh, if yes, how did you deal with it? You know, well,
2: I, I came back from the mountains. I, I'd gone there on my honeymoon.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And I'd heard the story the major had recited the story of the little girl, I was in those mountains, in that glorified atmosphere where the Indus was at my feet. And we were looking at these magnificent Karakorams. And when I came back, I felt a compulsion to write, first of all, this girl's story. And then again, describe the scenery I mean, the scenery was like a character itself. You know, Mm -hmm. the river was a character. The mountains were a character. And in my books, there are characters. Mm -hmm. And uh, I straight away wrote an article for the Civil and Military Gazette. It used to be a newspaper that used to exist then about the mountains and they published it. I have one of the uh, copies of it, you know, Mm -hmm. and then I had this uh, need to tell this girl's story. I knew I had to tell it. And as I was writing, I mean, I had not written before. I just knew that whatever happened, I would be able to write. I didn't have the means. And somehow I located a thesaurus. Whatever I needed, I found. And I... Search the thesaurus diligently for the nuance of each word to give the exact meaning I wanted to give. And, you know, at that time, my mind was, you know, as I said, it was bright with it was like it was on fire. Mm. And in fact, I used to tell myself, oh, my mind is on fire. It mm. was that uh, present, you know. And I was writing out of that fire, it was just flowing out of that. And of course I used the dictionary and thesaurus, but these two were my only tools really and my
1: computer and my pen. Were you ever afraid of being judged as a person on the basis of your writings? Were you ever discomforted by the idea of exposing your inner self way too much? Uh, you know, that didn't really occur to me till
2: the book was published. Right. <laughs> you know? And then suddenly it occurred to me because my mother, she, she's the only one who said, you've written a lot about me and your father who, who was passed away. And, and she spoke, uh, you know, very... She she can never be uh, furious, but very stern and angry. She was a very dignified woman. Hmm. And she just said that, you know, and I yeah. felt, oh dear, hmm. I've hurt the feelings. And uh, But, you know, I felt it's done and it's done. And uh, of course, I'd written so much about my mother and father. Yes, yes. But it, it obviously she had withstood it. And uh, I, I I couldn't help myself. I just, when I write, I feel I owe it to myself to write. To my truth is my truth.
1: Great. No, the, um, I, I believe the truth that you have stated and you have sort of, uh, the way you have sprinkled the characteristics of your own family around the, the characters of your books, it, it gives the readers or, or the aspiring writers Uh, the courage to be truthful to their own lives and to be truthful to the people around them as well, you know, not everything that we write about has to be larger than life, you know, people can be true to life as well, writing like so many other fields was a gentleman's club for the longest time in history. Whether they were gentlemanly or not remains to be discussed later. (laughs) (laughs) Of late, we see an alarming amount of foul language in mainstream media. Uh, Especially the content coming out of South Asia is packed with swear words and profanities. How can a woman, rather a lady, become a part of this pissing contest? You know, she need not be a part of this
2: pissing contest because uh, To use uh, so much profanity just shows a lack of talent. Mm. I mean, they don't have anything important to say, so they keep on using profane words, Mm. thinking that is what the uh, story is all about. Mm. And yes, I read some. I read one book about the uh, lunatic asylum, which has so much profanity in it. Mm. And, And there are people who have liked it very much, I found it very repulsive, you know, because I, it is somebody's uh, it's like somebody's vomit almost, you know, mm. a verbal mm. vomit. Mm. I don't want to be exposed to it, but whoever likes it is
1: welcome to it, you know. Mm. True. Thank you so much for, for <laughs> explaining it so well. If we take a cross section of your characters and. And and what what a great lineup of characters you have across the books, we find them so true to life that it is impossible to believe they do not exist. I really love the character of the old widow in Water, who wants to eat a laddu. Was <laughs> was she a fictitious character or was she real? No, I I
2: uh, I have to uh, thank. Deepa Mehta for it because she created this character in water. Really? Yes. And while she was making water, she said, Babsi, I want you to write the book Water as I'm making it so that the book will be launched with your book, you know. So every short while, she'd shoot, shoot the film and send it to me, and I would print it out and rush and write a little bit of the story of it, you know, and create the story. And that is how the whole novel Water turned out. It was a freakish way of doing things. Deepa would just, it was also very, very stimulating and very exciting to see now Deepa has done this, now this, now this. And of course, I brought some characters, Uh, I mean, when I was finishing the book, I included characters, which were not uh, Deepa Mehta's in that because I wanted to make it a a book, you Hmm. know, an actual novel. Hmm. And, uh, but it was such a beautiful, the novel, the ideas of Deepa Mehta's film are totally incorporated Hmm. in water. And... Of course, there's my creativity in creating Mm. that and introducing a couple of new characters, Mm. but I've given the characters that she has created more, uh, you know, authenticity and Mm. strength in a written word. Mm. She has done that in the cinema. I've tried to do that in the written
1: language. So in America, Babsi, there is a lot of stress on mentorship. Uh, Did you ever have a mentor in writing?
2: uh mentor, I, I would say that my editors were mentors in the sense that they would uh, clean up a sentence hmm. they, they did a great job of that hmm. and uh, they talked to me but they didn't say write this or write that that sort of mentorship i never had i my my main my mind was my mentor, you know,
1: so I wrote out of my mind. Yes. Considering your experiences of witnessing the partition of India and later on Pakistan and all the tragedies it brought in its wake, were you ever depressed like some of your counterparts? How did did you deal with that pain uh, of witnessing all that tragedy? You know,
2: as as a child, I was really—I think—nine uh, years old at that time, and uh, everything was vivid in my mind. Uh, the chanting of the mobs was a constant in my ears. You know, "Hare Hare Mahadev" and uh, uh, "Allah Akbar," and you know, all all the various communities doing their chants and. Uh, I was, in fact, at a friend's house when the house in front caught, had been caught, uh, put on fire mm-hmm. and was blazing fire and I was looking at it and I felt as if it was blood, blood being splattered in the sky. Yes. It was frightening to observe that fire so close. And I mean, that gave me an idea of that how much you know when i was writing some something uh, kicks in which gives you knowledge without your being aware of it and i wrote that shalmi was on fire you know in the wall city and that was true although i did not nobody told me that and i did not know it as far as i knew but when i wrote it came out truthfully Mm -hmm. i didn't write the wrong place and so often I found this comes from an inner sense, which one is not aware of, hmm. it's an intuition, hmm. but it is of great help to the writer.
1: Hmm. Uh, Babsi, it has, it has been such a treat talking to you. And uh, I, uh, before I let you go, I, I would just request if you could read to us an excerpt from any of your writings, you know, that you particularly like yourself.
2: Uh, give me my crow Eaters book. <laughs> I'll read a passage from that. Here we go.
1: Arshad. Mm-hmm. <inaudible>
2: Ji, Faridun Jungalwala, <inaudible> Freddie for short, was a strikingly handsome, dulcet voiced adventurer with so few scruples that he not only succeeded in carving a comfortable niche in the world for himself, but he also earned the respect and gratitude of the entire Parsi community. When he died at 65, a majestic gray-haired patriarch, he attained the rare distinction of being locally listed in the Rathushti calendar of great men and women. So he was a rascal, a <laughs> jumping rascal. And he, he was mentioned in this movie, which means that every time a Jashan or prayer ceremony took place, hmm. together with the names of illustrious Parsis, he was there mentioned. Hmm. Hmm. I mean, this is dating back to Cyrus the Great. And you know, from that time, the Zoroastrians were prominent. And in each prayer, their names are recited, you know. Hmm. The, uh, among them, Faridun Junglewala's name is also taken. So, he, you know, he, he attained not only prominence in life but after death also. After death. Yes.
1: He, what a genius. <laughs> <laughs> great, great, Babsi. I am so, so grateful for this time that you have given us.
2: Bless you. After that interview, Taseen. Thank you so very much. God bless you.
0: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Miller Oddcast. You've just listened to an interview with Babsi Sidwa by Tazeen Zahida. And as Bailey and I were talking about, that's Bailey Boyd, contest editor, joining me for this brief conversation. Hi. As we were just talking about, Bailey, uh, they cover a whole lot in uh, 15 minutes.
3: Yeah, that's so impressive.
0: <laughs> it is. Cidwa's career spans, uh, you know, as is stated pretty early on from 1978 and her most recent novel is 2013. They spend some time early on talking about her first novel, The Crow Eaters. And out of that kind of discussion stems a kind of back and forth that for me is really is really oriented toward craft and the concerns of writers is especially useful um, in addition to perhaps if you're hearing from Babsi Seedwa for the first time, introducing you to a South Asian author, but also concentrating on issues that are that are vital to all writers, but especially young writers, writers who are just finding their way. Yes. I was struck. One of the things I was struck by was and this is in terms of craft on a, on a certain level. That she mentions using a, a thesaurus. And she mentions using a thesaurus, not, I think, in the way that we might associate with a young writer, where you're just trying out different words and you're just so in love with language that you just want to use it all. She's very particular and scrupulous about the words she uses because she wants the word to be the right word, the perfect word.
3: I love that idea too.
0: Yeah. I thought that that was... It was telling, uh, okay. especially when she uh, comes around to the question from the interviewer about the uh, the profanity of, you know, uh, modern novels and her ideas about, and these, these are not, these are ideas that we've heard before, where the use of profanity or the excessive use of profanity is supposed to be by um, by certain writers and by certain critics as an indicator that there's a lack of talent happening. But I think and as we were talking about this a little before, I'm curious to hear your thoughts about it too. To me, it seems less a kind of, in the context of the whole interview, it seems less a judgment on anyone who's using profanity and more of a challenge. I mean, there's definitely a position that she has, but it's more of a challenge to young writers to kind of be more reflective about what it
3: is that they're writing. Yeah, exactly. And I think even if you, even if your perspective isn't the same, and you do tend to incorporate profanity or foul language or however you're defining that, um, I think hearing um, Situat speak about this and hearing that perspective can be really productive too, to even think about, again, kind of going back to the thesaurus answer, is that the exact perfect word? And, and I think some people might say yes. And so that would be interesting, but even just being almost interrogating your intentionality um, with that. And so I think even if you have a different perspective um, on that particular craft issue, even just hearing the way that she's speaking about this can be really, really helpful. I think most of these answers if not all of them are extremely helpful to to hear somebody with such you know such a long career and so much time having um, grappled with with a lot of these questions from a young writer to a to a more established one all of these can be really helpful and as we were talking before I just always love hearing interviews I feel like I'm being given access to a a private conversation and giving being given some you know really valuable advice and so it was it was really a treat to hear this interview and like you said it was just there was so much here in 15 minutes it just kind of blew me away to be able to get all of all of these answers um and have all of all of this rich content and i think that also speaks to to um, the really great questions that are being asked too, which I very much appreciated as well. So yeah, I I think it was it was really a treat for me. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, the the framework of the questions really loans itself to this interview being a vehicle of reflection and thought for uh, again, I'll say younger writers, but really all writers. And I. I was taken with her description of herself as a young writer, as someone whose mind was on fire, wow. uh, something I really identify with and, and kind of sometimes I'm nostalgic for as I, as I um, creep through middle age. But I love. I mean, and this goes back to the thesaurus, it goes back to kind of answering craft questions for oneself, mm-hmm. um, that balance of just being teeming with language and, and, and bursting kind of like with stories to tell is counterbalanced by that, that insistence on intentionality. Really, these a lot of these questions lead to discovering what Cidwa's kind of like answers, what her own answers are to very important craft questions. We come later to kind of like discuss the difficulty uh, authors often have. It could be nonfiction, fiction, or poets who are compelled to write about their family or people that they know intimately. Mm-hmm. And she has to answer a question about that because as she, as she mentions, you know, it's at a certain point, her mom says, oh, well you, you write about me and your father a lot. And she had a sense that she had perhaps offended her, but in the end she has, she answers that craft question by, by saying like, well, my truth is my truth. And this is, this is what I have to tell.
3: Mm-hmm. And I think that's a question that comes up for so many people. So hearing, hearing, Seedwa talk through that I think is really, really helpful for sure. It's something that I, that I know I've you know, encountered and then I've also heard other people asking similar questions. So I think this is a question that is so applicable to so many people who, oh. are, who are working in a plethora of mediums but um, certainly for writers, I think this is a really great question
0: that calls to mind too later in the interview when she talks about she's talking about mentorship and talking about the not having an explicit mentor outside of kind of editors. I think, I mean, in the states for sure, we definitely think of mentorship as being part of a young writer's kind of progress, especially because of the proliferation over the late 20th century and the the early 21st of you know, graduate school writing programs.
2: Hmm.
0: When she says, like, "My mind was my mentor," what struck me about that is that finally, all writers will have their own mind as their mentor. I mean, at least from my perspective, the the writers that that manage to kind of create create durable uh, literature, that will always be the case for eventually. Because if one has the kinds of mentors that one merely tries to, to please or, or imitate or kind of come in the shadow of without ever kind of breaking free of that bond or transcending that bond into becoming oneself as a writer, I think it's a really good, uh, it's, it's a kind of, it's an aspirational gesture that she makes there, uh, I think for all writers.
3: Yeah, for sure. Having your your mind to be the mentor, and and I even really um appreciated hearing that the editors were kind of taking the place of a mentor role because they um I think I like think she said they cleaned up her sentences, and so even just thinking about that I think is a different way to think about mentors to think who might be um our mentors, and yeah, tr- trusting trusting ourselves I guess. Um, and yeah. at the
0: same time, I think that that does not necessarily mean that the writer is sufficient unto oneself for what, what they're creating. And we see later, and you've made mention of this, um, and I'd love to hear more about the uh, the way in which she's in conversation with other artists.
3: Yeah, I think that's, as I was listening to this interview, um, I was just thinking, again, about interviews in general um, and as I said earlier, I just really love interviews, and I loved this one as well uh, because because we get we get that inside look at at this work. Oh, it was actually because you know it was actually a work that was produced in conversation. It was actually a work that was inspired by somebody else creating something, and and I just wonder how many how many works do we not know that story about um, and and how how awesome to hear about artists having that conversation during their creation process and and really exchanging work during that process I mean that's just so important and it's something that I don't at least hear a whole lot about and I I liked having that look that look into to the process for that particular that particular um text so yeah and and I just couldn't I just really am so impressed that we got to hear about that as well, because even though this interview is so cohesive and so consistent, um, which, you know, made it very easy to listen to that was still yet another kind of angle about this very, um, very established career was yet another kind of gem of, of insight and, and I appreciated hearing about it.
0: Yeah, and I think that it resonating with your with your love of kind of you, you, I love the way that you put it. You say you talk about overhearing an interview because it feels like an intimate conversation that, uh, even though it's made for public consumption, takes on the qualities of two people who are really invested in what they're talking about, not necessarily needing an audience. Uh, the the conversation itself is kind of sufficient uh, unto its, you know itself but for me i think that this is one of the reasons that what i'd call paratexts to you know the primary works of a person whether that's interviews whether that's reviews or 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 essays or or, converse, or different kinds of conversations are so are so vital and important to writers but they're also creative acts themselves
3: oh yeah mm-hmm
0: you talk about being in conversation with other artists. It's it's interesting in, in interviews like this one to realize, on some level, that an interview, when it's done well, can stage an artist's conversation with their work. And uh, I think, I think it I, that. I'm sorry.
3: I said, yeah, I think I think um, it invites that, and it, like you're saying, it prompts it prompts that in in some way, whereas. Whereas without, without, without somebody asking you those questions, you might not actually get the chance to have that conversation um, with your own work that, lead, that I think can really lead to your own insights. Um, that, and then obviously like we're seeing here insights that are helpful to others, um, but even understanding your, your own work or understanding your own work at a certain time and being able to being invited to have that conversation, I think, is is very important. And and without the questions, I'm not sure that we have a whole lot of opportunities for that. Even though they are such treats for readers and audience members. Mm-hmm.
0: So all the way around, an excellent interview, full of uh, full of wisdom and full of questions that are major drivers for anyone with a creative spirit. And we're happy to be able to present it to you. I think we're done here.
3: Yeah. Thank you so much for listening and and thank you to the artists uh, for the great questions and to Babsi Sidwa for the very insightful answers.
0: All right. Stay tuned. We'll be back with more Miller Odcast in the near future. This has been Bailey Boyd and Mark McKee for the Miller Odcast. Wave goodbye,
3: Bailey. <laughs> Bye.
0: That's our sign-off. She waves goodbye.
3: See you next time.
0: Thanks for being here with us for Miller Oddcast 34, featuring Tazin Zahida's interview of Babsi Sidwa. Podcast 35 is on its way, so make sure your ears are on their toes. Thanks, as always, to the Missouri Review contest editor, Bailey Boyd, and to Patricia Miller for her generous support for the Miller Audio Prize. Just as a reminder, TMR is open for submissions year-round, and we remain dedicated to discovering and publishing the best contemporary writing in fiction, non-fiction, and poetry. Be heard. Give us the opportunity to discover you, subscribe, or submit your work today. In addition, we have tons of exhilarating and free creative content to read, listen to, and even watch on our website. Learn more at MissouriReview.com.